Kia ora and welcome to Asian and Aotearoa, a podcast of uncensored conversations with creative Asian women. I'm Jenna and today I catch up with Amanda Gray, Susian Leo. Amanda is a Kiwi Singaporean, Peranakan Chinese and an actor, jazz singer, writer, face painter and lover of K-dramas. This starts in the middle of a conversation we're having about language and we also chat about sex, internalised racism, connecting with our bodies and lastly, motherland. New Zealand's first Asian cabaret that Amanda is in the process of creating. Um, so, yeah, like I think a lot of the world or the Western world is torn because we have, you know, China is such a big superpower, right? And, yes. and everyone does trade with China. Yes. And like they like to be like, oh, yes, one fifth of the world is now Chinese. So actually Chinese is becoming a more, you know, dominant language. And people, I think, are really confronted with their racism or their like prejudice against the Chinese and this other way of doing things or otherness or whatever. Yeah. And the need to learn Chinese to become economically viable in today's world. Yes. But I don't know how that's changing with COVID, but you know. Yeah. But I mean, I'm really glad. I'm glad that I, you know, in, in Singapore, even though it was like hell and hard that I had to by hook or by crook learn how to speak Mandarin because of course, in terms of my career, it's really helped. And I will have to say my Mandarin's pretty bad because it kind of goes out of use a lot, right? But still, I think language is so important and it sort of opens up a new way of seeing things. It can open up. Yes, and you know? that's the amazing thing. And someone once said to me, you can't really learn te reo Māori without learning tikanga. Yes. And that was such a beautiful way of summing up um I think, you know, the intrinsic value of learning languages totally. and different languages. Because yeah. you kind of learn cultural values and cultural norms along with the language, yes. right? Yes. The nuances. And the the language, nuances, you know? yeah. And you get a different understanding of a culture yeah. when you understand their language yeah. and how people communicate. And I think it's really bizarre that we don't, there isn't more emphasis that actually every child, I think every child should be bilingual in some regard. Like 100%. And whether that's your chosen mother tongue or it's something else, you know, I just think how much more beneficial socially and economically will we be if we were all bilingual? Like our understanding of culture and our tolerance of differences Mm. or not just tolerance but our celebration of differences would really go a long way in, in terms of social cohesion because we're used to switching between two cultures even if that's just linguistically. Yeah. And um, recently at that yoga podcast club that Mahi was doing. Oh, yes. Tell me. Oh, I loved it. So there was a podcast that I can't remember what it was, but um, there was a quote someone said that there is a big difference between accepting someone's differences and celebrating someone's differences. Yes. And that really stuck to me and spoke to maybe my experience with my body and how I sit culturally. Like I think everyone who is struggling with their identity as a minority comes to a point where there is a choice between merely accepting that you're different and really celebrating it and using it as part of your brand. Fuck yes. Like how are we celebrating this? Exactly. And there, you know, the kind of the quiet acceptance that, okay, yeah, you're different oh, yeah, you come from this background, and actually celebrating that and being like, there is value in you being different and your contribution to whatever space you hold um, is that much more valuable because of the differences between us. Yes. I am, uh, seriously, I am only just very recently learning this. After, After, you know, decades of wanting to fit into a white world and belong there only very recently have i been like oh no hang on there's this other way of living yes and and this is like literally with my with my like really falling in love with korean dramas and korean culture i mean that's just kind of opened the door to realizing there is a different way of uh 
uh, experiencing things. So I can experience the same things, but in a different way. And that is bizarre. Like part of me is like, oh my gosh, all of my crazy romantic dreams. And like, you know, I'm a romantic. Yes. I can experience it actually in an Asian way, which is even better. Like it's actually even more connected to who I am. Right. Yeah. Instead of, so my romantic dreams have shifted from them being very Eurocentric to them just being uh-huh. um, person-centric, I don't know, <laughs> Asian, Asian-centric, right? Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, I've spoken to you about this before. Like, I had such a weird kind of uh, unconscious obsession with the white soft park album. Oh, man. Don't even get me started. Well, okay. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So... A Pākehā Pals. Yeah, our Pākehā Pals. My God, I love it. <laughs> we, we just them as our Pākehā Pals. You know, I have some amazing Pākehā friends that would totally take their label on. Yeah. I think someone, yo, <laughs> yo, my darlings, Courtney, Callum, I don't know, James, like someone needs to make this into a brand, Pākehā Pals, you know. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, I think suddenly, you know, my whole life, Kaupapa and Mahi over the past year has been trying to um, undo the internalized whiteness in my life and yeah. I've you know spoken about this in other podcasts but like yeah. looking at my friend group my dating life don't need to look at my food because we all know our <laughs> foods are, are that white I have a yeah, I, six yeah. months you know like um, but actually looking at my social life and the media that I consume yeah and being like okay I only consume I only consume um Western media. Yes. And also most of my friends are Pakia, except when I go back to Singapore. Yeah. You know. And then surprisingly in the past and the great thing about consuming Asian media or other media is that it connects you with other POC. Because other POC will also go crazy. Yeah. I oh. definitely need to get some recommendations from you after this. Oh, for K dramas? Yeah. Crash landing on you, just start there. It's it's so ridiculous. <laughs> it's so I was so obsessed. But yeah, I don't know what it's done, but it's actually reprogrammed my mind into uh, it's reprogrammed the way I think about quality. So aloofness. I used to love the aloofness of Park Air Boys. But then part of me and then but then I realized of course that oh my gosh, Asian boys are so aloof too. Like I used to say, what's better than a aloof, unavailable, emotionally unavailable <laughs> Park Air Boy? And aloof, emotionally unavailable, but sometimes emotionally expressive Korean boy. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. You know, like Yes. Um and so Dating mm-hmm. and apps. Mm. Tell, what's going on? I'm not on any apps, and I've not been on any apps for like four years. And probably you get the same questions, right? Mm. Because I'm still single. Everyone's mm-hmm. like, what "So what do you? Yeah, when do you just put yourself out there? Just get on. What are you? Are you on? Yeah. I I, well, after a long journey uh, with trying to be independent and trying to like grapple with my own loneliness. You know, because I was someone who was always looking for a partner mm. to fill that hole, right? Yeah. It was all about trying to um, fill that disconnect between childhood and very harsh puberty, teenage reality in a, yeah. in a very rigid society. Um, so I was always looking for someone to provide that connection for me. And I suppose I still am. Maybe I will be until I die. But in the whole journey of learning to be independent and then also trying to grapple with how I how I sexually express myself coming from a Catholic and a Chinese Catholic background. Yeah, I come from a Catholic background too. So you mm-hmm. you know that it's there's a lot of not only repressed sexuality, but for me, and I don't know about you. Oh, yes, I was taught that if if you express yourself sexually, you don't value yourself. Mm-hmm. So they really linked sexuality to self worth. Now the really so you know the really interesting thing is that I guess personally. For me, I realized that, yeah, okay, actually self-worth sex is intrinsically linked to my self-worth because the body is linked to my self-worth. It's Mm. a part of who I am. Mm. So I did have to really kind of what I like to call go through my slut phase. Um, I'm blocking this from my parents ever hearing it. (laughs) I know. I know. I uh, hope my parents never listen to this. Uh. (laughs) So I went through that in my early 20s and I was trying to – I was trying to prove to myself, I think at the time, that I could have casual sex and that that was really suited towards me. Yeah. And I was like trying to fight every every rule, every stereotype that Catholicism 
and conservatism had put on me being like, I don't have to believe that anymore. I can. Right. But I've come full circle. Yeah. And I realized that uh, what there is value in perhaps rethinking the way that we use people Mm. romantically, sexually in general. And I kind of have to step back and I, I, I stepped back a couple of years ago and went, I think fundamentally in Western culture, there is a, you know, there is a culture of using people for gratification. Yeah. And we don't, we don't do after, we don't get consent. Consent, you know, consent is not just about yes or no, but Mm. consent is also about looking after someone to me. I think the amazing thing about trying to, you know, think about consent these days is we're looking at, like what that means in a in a kind of a well-being whole order sense. Yeah. So I think that apps for me personally, I mean in general, and look, a lot of people probably will disagree. The experiences have been different. Sure. But um, I think apps kind of encourage this really superficial um, uh, instant gratification, yeah. consumerist kind of mentality where we can swipe left, swipe right. We can pick and choose. Like, yeah. We can pick from this unlimited pool oh, and we God. can just yeah. that, buy that, our way. That hookup culture. It's hookup you know, culture, right? Um, I just saw on TikTok and on Instagram this post and it was like um, uh, performative sex versus <gasps> sex for pleasure. And I was looking, I was like, holy shit. Wow. Okay. The majority <laughs> of the sex I've had, it's performative. Basically, it's all... For the guy, it's all for the guys. Yeah, it's like you know, doesn't really ma- doesn't matter if um, doesn't matter if the woman comes. Doesn't it's just you know, um, it's penetra- just all for pen- them. Yeah, it's, it's penetration. It's like, very heterosexual. Yeah, yeah, like masculine heterosexual base. You know, dynamic. And I mean, I don't know that like because my experiences are as a cis hit woman, right? Yeah, and I don't know if in queer spaces or yeah, you know, with non-binary people, if they have the same kind of philosophy around apps and sex yeah as i do yes um but i feel like especially in a heterosexual space yeah yeah, we are so used to like because it's so gendered right we're so used to performing performative sex and you know we're so used to um appeasing or yes uh you know trying to make men feel more comfortable also i'm because i'm a people pleaser yes i don't know like when I think about going on a dating app, first of all, being in a in a bigger body, mm, it's yep. scarier for me. I feel like, oh shit, okay, do I need to warn this guy? And yes, we talked I, about yeah, this. Yeah, you right? know, when I did have that dig appointment, the I only felt good about going through with it because I knew him from the gym. Exactly. And so yeah, he'd already seen me. With it, yeah. And I I remember when you know when we were yeah. talking about this when I was doing an interview with you, like I could relate because. You have such a stigma around, you know, fatness that we think that we need to pre-warn people about our fatness because you don't want them to be turned off. Yeah. And is this some fat phobic shit? Like, um, because it's, is this internalized fat phobia? It really is. Is this belief that I'm like, okay, if I was skinny or in a straight, a straight sized, Going on a dating app, I'd be like fucking swiping away. Yeah, but this is also an illusion as well, right? Because a lot of my, you know, I think there's this illusion that if we were skinnier, you know, life would be so much easier. Yeah, it's a fucking and actually no, it's a it's a delusion because I know a lot of my skinny friends have similar. They might have a really different live experience, but they have similar insecurities. Yeah, or they've got you know. But of course, they have no idea what it's like to live in a fat body. Yeah. And the extra weight, mental weight, literally, right, that comes with that. Yeah. And I think also, you know, my my journey with sexuality was also trying my journey with my body and trying to reclaim or trying to uh, trying to actually use external validation to help me love myself. Which, you know, went so far. Yeah. And then it. And then it just gets to a point when you do that, when you start feeling sexually attractive because you're sexually desired and then you're like, okay, well, I must be attractive because I'm sexually desired. There comes a point where once all that dries up, you have to like do the hard work and be like, here we go. Yeah. Here we go. You know, like 
I mean, that's the other thing about desire, like attraction and desirability and self-love, right? Like mm. when you're using sex as a marker for that mm. and not anything else. But of course, it's a primal instinct, you know? They're, they're so, it's just, it's, it's a big thing. But yeah, so that journey with sex was also a journey with my body. Yes. And like yeah. learning. Talk, yeah, do you want to talk about that, your my journey. journey with your body? Oh, okay. So I was a really active kid in New Zealand, like, I did all the sports meets, etc. I played mini ball. I never really had, of course, I didn't really have a problem with eating at that age or so I thought. And then when I went to Singapore, that's when I ballooned, right? Because, and I used to, on the way home, in between classes, stop by my dairy and buy chocolate. And then I used to sneak away and go to the park for a walk and go have McDonald's. So... Food, of course, I'm, you know, I'm a big emotional eater. Yeah. And food became a way to, um, you know, a, a, a connection, a comfort, etc. Yes. But also I've been reading about the psychology of eating and of putting on weight and how sometimes when you don't feel seen, mm-hmm. when your experiences don't feel seen, mm-hmm. your body to be seen puts on weight so yeah. that you are physically, you are physically seen. Yeah. And I think for a long time in Singapore, I felt like I did feel... I felt so visible yet very invisible, you yes, know? Yes, yes. Like I was horribly visible because I was so different and I was putting on a ton of weight that they sent me to the Trim and Fat Club, which is the Trim and Fit Club, sorry, which is fat backwards. This was an exercise club for people, uh, kids whose BMI was over or under. But of course, more kids were over than they were under. Um, and yeah, and like I, I think a lot of the time in Singapore, I felt like, I really wasn't coping very well. Yeah. I was pretty depressed. I had a lot of emotional outbursts at times and no one really seemed to be that worried about it. They just thought it was me not studying. I don't know. And I think dad kind of knew, but didn't really know what to do. At that time, everyone just thought it was kind of normal, you know, mm. but it's actually not normal. And one of my real like big um, friends and mentors in Singapore so she met me when I was nine and then, or ten and met me again. And then we didn't see each other for many years. And we re-met when I was about, when I was 16 or 17. And she made a comment one day. She said, yeah, you are really, you weren't a well-adjusted kid. And that was the first time I realized that my experiences in Singapore weren't normal. Mm. That, or not normal, that, well, they, it wasn't just that I had, a bad puberty it just wasn't it wasn't just hard puberty it was just I actually literally was not adjusting yes well at all and I was slipping under the cracks and then my brother worse was even worse he academically like that academic pressure real really like put a big strain on his self-esteem yeah um and my brother also put on weight from being a really active kid so at least I could kind of put my mind to it and you know, have a go at academia, but my brother doesn't have a brain like that. Or his, his you know, he also has a, cu- a couple of learning disabilities or difficulties. And so he really slipped through the cracks there. And so, yeah, your body just puts on weight to be seen, right? It's a manifestation of that. Yeah. And <clears throat> and stress, right? Yes. So, and then I had men, oh God, I had a lot of friends and male guys in Singapore tell me that I was fat and, you know, one, I have a friend who told me I would never find a boyfriend because of my size. Oh, you, you feel that? And then I came to New Zealand and I was like, wow, oh I'm like average here. And when I came to New Zealand, no one really saw me as fat. It was so oh. bizarre. It was really bizarre that, you know, I guess even though Western standards of beauty in like a modeling world and art world are pretty shit, but in like in everyday life, yeah, it's not great, but it definitely isn't the same as Asian beauty standards. Yeah. You know, like in Asia, everyone just wants to be a stick. They don't even want to have the Kim Kardashian ass, you know, petite, teeny, teeny. They want petite stick. You know, that's what's upheld. Yeah. Um, So, you know, Asia is doing hangups. So I came to New Zealand and I felt like I had no male attention apart from my first like boyfriend ages ago in Singapore, you know, and even that relationship was very much like, founded on the fact that he was like, he would always quote that Backstreet Boys song to me, like what makes you different makes you beautiful kind of thing. I know it's so cheesy because I had such a big hang up over it. And then I came here and then I realized everyone has hangups about their body. 
And it was actually, of course, a lot easier in New Zealand to kind of start unraveling my fat phobia. Yeah. Whereas in Singapore, like I talked to my sister about this and I was like, this concept of fat phobia is a thing, Emery, because I don't want her to grow up. And she she has and she will be growing up with the same standards, you yeah. know. Yeah. And so I think where I am now is I I – I have a lot of moments, I think, and we all will, of having to fight my own fat phobia, right? You yes. know, it's so, even though I love myself and I'm happy with my body. Yeah. And I don't, and I, I realize that when I look at my body in the mirror, I don't hate it. I only hate it when I compare to someone oh, else, right? right? Totally. 100%. I'm and, completely the same. You know, when I'm at home, I'm chilling. I'm like, my body is sweet, you know. Yeah. And it's only when I have to step out into the world and, and then I yourself. start, and then I start comparing, and it's like, oh no, I <laughs> know uh, exactly. So, even you know, especially like finding ways to move my body that feel right to me. Like mm. it's a constant tension of like, I want to move my body in a way that feels good. So you know, I've gotten into yoga. I've actually always loved dancing as well. Because yeah. you're a dancer. Me too. You're, yeah. you're a dancer, yeah. right? Well, I mean, or used to be. I used to be jazz. Was yeah, it? jazz when I was a jazz. kid. Yeah. Yeah, so I always loved moving my body, and then I, I, yoga for me was a great way of expressing that, apart from the theatre, you know. Um, and there's a constant tension between um, I want to move my body, but I also want my body to be as efficient as it can be. So trying to juggle health and fat phobia, there's a really thin line between health and internalised fat phobia. Mm, yes. Because I want to be healthy, but I don't, I don't want to trick myself into thinking that I'm being healthy. I don't, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, When yeah. actually when I just want to be skinny. In disguise, I want to be in a smaller body. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's a really hard line to walk. But yeah. what's really helped is actually kind of changing the philosophy about my body. So, you know, kind of in my, in my own kind of study into um, beyond body positivity, because we all know that's a very problematic term actually yes. now. It's yeah. been co-opted, right? Yeah by our lovely skinny white woman from the backs <laughs> of trans black women, you know, kind yes. of. Yeah, but yeah. Um, in kind of like formulating a relationship with my body, mm. I realized that our culture trains us, capitalism trains us uh, out of connecting with our body. Because we're so disconnected with our body, we need products and things to help us to bridge that gap. Mm. So actually, if we can teach our everyone and our daughters and our sons to listen to our body and be connected with it, and listen to its cues, its hunger cues, its sadness cues. If we can listen, if we can learn to develop that symbiotic, intuitive relationship with our body, maybe really that to me is the secret for fighting fat phobia whilst, you know, trying to improve your health overall yeah. and your well-being. Yeah. So my focus now of late has been on trying to actually tune into how I feel instead of relying on an app. Oh, oh my gosh. Was the one. Wow. That was the one, That's a yes from you, <laughs> Universe. Thank you. Yes. So like, for instance, I was wearing, a, I, I have a Fitbit and I yes. was wearing it for ages. Yeah. And my favorite thing to do was to track my sleep. I get up every morning and I look at my sleep breakdown and it started becoming quite psychosomatic. So like, even though I feel okay, if I saw that I got seven hours, 45 minutes of sleep and I only got like 51 minutes of deep sleep instead of my hour and a half, which is recommended, yeah, I'd start to feel tired. Aha. And while I think tra like the Fitbit was great for like tracking, like alerting me to my sleep quality, recently I forgot to charge it and I've just left it off. Yeah. I want to tune into how am I feeling throughout the day? Totally. Yes. Because I've also gone off the pill and I read that great book, Period Power by Maisie Hill. And it talks about working with your cycle. Oh, oh it's this amazing thing okay. about how you've got different cycle uh, within your one menstrual cycle. Yes, you have different seasons. So you've got a winter, spring, summer. I need to read this. Uh, it was recommended by a great friend of mine called Inga, who is actually moving back to New Zealand and wanting to work in the space of women's health. But you know, and it was a great book because it talked about how menstrual education is while it's a lot of it is trying to be more inclusive there's very little studies done about you know trans people and menstrual cycles yeah and there was also a chapter on if you're trans or non-binary how to 
even if your body, wherever it is in your transitioning, doesn't have a menstrual cycle, you can still work with like moon cycles and stuff. It's it's really amazing. It's a great book. And, um, you know, coming off the pill and being like, wow, so my body, if my body has all the wisdom, if my body scientifically is this amazing machine and, you know, we have all these processes in our bodies that we don't, we have unconscious, that, you know, they happen instantly, you know, without us knowing or really being aware of it. If, okay, so if I scientifically and then spiritually have all this amazing wisdom, then how can I tap on that wisdom to learn what is best for my body? Yes. So, listening, experiencing it instead of looking at a screen to tell you how you're feeling. Exactly. Or how you should be feeling. So I'm, I've come off the Fitbit app and I, <clears throat> I'm trying to, I'm just observing how my body feels when I get less sleep or more. Yeah. Because I, yeah, I realize even, I don't even, yeah, I just, we're, I'm so, I have been so out of touch with my body. And actually, this really came up when I was doing a, a really difficult but amazing clowning, uh, clowning training during my post-grad with my clown teacher, Iris Seidenstein, mm. um, who's a very harsh but amazing teacher, I find. And I was really struggling to master his technique in his classes. Now, he uses, he warms up with Iyengar yoga or his own exercises that are amount of creative and Iyengar yoga exercises. But Ira loves Tai Chi as well. Oh, yes. And so when I was really struggling with this, like it was like the hardest thing in my whole like training, you know, I was crying every day kind of thing. Um, I remember speaking to my father and telling him this. And he said, well, of course, you're not getting it because you're not connected with your body. Mm. So your mind, you're doing all these physical exercises, but you're trying to replicate the end goal. But you're not experiencing yes. every step of the exercise that's allowing you to get there. Yeah. And so that's actually where my journey with yoga first started that I can remember, which was Ira's class and the the warm-ups in the morning were getting me were teaching me a new way to connect with my body yeah. in a way that I hadn't really consciously had before like as a young girl I was playing mini ball and I was dancing whatever that was just a very natural connection right you don't think about it yeah but this as an adult coming back to your body that you've been disconnected with yes right for so long this, yes. you have to relearn how to get that natural connection back yeah and that flow so you know, I think, yeah, our culture does train us to be away from our bodies, to medicate, to do all these things so that capitalism or neoliberalism can sell it back to us in a packaged form instead of, like, intuitively knowing what foods are good for your body. Yes. Like, it was always amazing to me that a friend of mine could be like, yeah, I can't eat this, that, or the other foods because they make me feel really sick. And part of me is like, I don't have that problem. (laughs) But it's amazing that they know what specific foods they can eat. Yeah. And like now if, you know, we're talking about eczema, right? Or skin problems. Like eczema supposedly is an inflammation gut problem. So I don't even, apart from like seafood, in which I will take a very heavy antihistamine before I eat my chili crab in Singapore. (laughs) But apart from seafood, I don't know what makes me itch. Yeah. So the journey with the body, both sexually and health-wise, is about you know, when you come back to value, to when you come back to have a relate to start a really, to start a, a positive relationship with your body, um, everything kind of starts to change, or you think about well-being and whole order and the way you work differently. So I was thinking, my whole life I've been working against my body, right? Yes. Like I've been fighting. I've been wanting to make it smaller. I've been trying to limit. I'll either, you know, eat a lot. And then I'll eat nothing or I'll, I'm constantly controlling my intake or limiting myself or making myself run on a treadmill. Yeah. So I'm trying to work. I feel like I'm always fighting my body, fighting my fatness, fighting my weight gain, fighting my cravings instead yeah. of working Ooh. with it. Yes. Yes. So my philosophy now is like, how can I work with my body so that I can do all the things I want to do as opposed to how can I beat my body into submission yes the self-flagellation the self-flagellation the catholic self-flagellation the guilt guilt, right um and so that's also kind of informing i suppose how i relate to people energetically and it also relates it's really good for me i think for everyone but specifically for me who's a people pleaser like yourself to kind of tune in and have that time because then you start to be able to set boundaries 
if you can set boundaries with yourself, yeah, it starts to become easier to set boundaries with other people, mm. I find. Mm. So, you know, when we talk about hoora, it really is, I think it really starts with the mind-body connection, you know, whether yeah. that's mental health, sexual health, physical health. And I think if we start to teach our children how to connect with their bodies and how to learn how to express that or yes. verbalise that, yes we will be a lot better off in terms of health, you know. And so that's kind of like the philosophy I'm playing with at the moment. So, yeah, sleep, exercise. Like, man, I hate running. But when I, you know, I, I've been trying to walk more, get into my yoga um, and eat better. That's why my, my smoothie, where are you? i got to drink my smoothie. And see, like, the, the smoothie is a great thing because I actually really like smoothies. So it's it's a great way for me to get my nutrition in the morning. Yeah. And also realizing, ah, oh, another thing, I don't know if you'll find this, is overeating. Yes. You know, because we're eating <laughs> yeah, know all about whole, that, right? <laughs> I know, right? But, yeah. You know, like, there's a lot of philosophy. Because I've tried everything from, like, low-carb. Dad and mum had me, did you do the low-carb? Oh, oh, um, as a kid, no. Um, but definitely the going from starving myself to totally binging and just yo-yoing yeah. all over the show. I'm like, you know how you said your mum's always saying it was day one of my diet? Oh, God. And I yeah. feel like, I do feel like I'm a little bit like that person because I am I like to try new things, right? Yeah. I don't want to be that person that's constantly like being like, oh my God, so I'm trying intermittent fasting. Now I'm trying keto. Now I'm trying paleo. Yeah. And like, I, I was like looking into my new fad, but looking into intuitive eating. A little bit. I haven't done that much research, but recently I've kind of been talking to my body. So when I sit down to eat dinner, I'm just like, all right, body, can you take a couple of deep breaths? Please cue me when to stop eating. Yes. Okay. Because your body is smart, right? Yeah, like yeah, scientifically yeah. speaking, biologically speaking. Yeah. So even if I'm watching TV and distracted, because I love eating and watching TV, yes. even though it's bad for you, I'm not going to stop doing it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> But actually, it's surprising when I actually take that moment at the beginning to have that mind. It's mindfulness, right? Yes. There'll be, I'll be like watching, I don't know, <coughs> excuse me, a Korean drama. Mm. And suddenly I'll go, I'll go to take a bite and I'll be like, oh, actually, I feel quite full. And I'll slow down. Did you forget, so um, as a kid, and I don't know if this is an Asian thing, a Chinese thing, but the, it's sort of like you have to eat everything doesn't matter how you feel from my parents I got you need to eat that you need to eat everything on your plate no actually that's good <laughs> yeah but I know this this the way we force kids to eat yeah like I saw this great I don't know if you saw it on Instagram but like oh wow kids don't want to finish the, finish their food hunger they, they know their hunger cues yeah they don't want to sleep I mean you know sometimes kids do need discipline don't get me wrong <laughs> but it was this whole list of how kids react and actually it's them mitigating their own body cues you know yeah. like and yeah. and how we train kids out of that like i think there is something to be said of of course like nutrition and etc but how can we strike a healthy balance and teach kids how to communicate yeah think things like that and like sugar like you know totally i like to think i'm not going to feed my kids sugar but then i'm a hypocrite right because i'm a consumer of sugar yes yeah but yeah i think mindfulness is really important you know in terms of how we consume so i guess this my whole philosophy is really trying to hone in on my consumption and try to be mindful about it and that also covers um the consumption of sex so if we come full circle and go back to that yeah i guess i've come full circle in my philosophy about sex being like you know i think people should be able to have casual sex you know, when they want. And I don't think if you have casual sex, it means that you don't love yourself or yeah. you don't value yourself. Yeah. But I also think there is value in the way that we treat a person we have casual sex with in terms of before and after casual sex etiquette. Yeah. Um, I saw another great article recently that was kind of rethinking the five love languages. Mm-hmm. Tell me more. Into, um, um, they were kind of widening the idea of five lang- love languages to including the body and personal mental space. So this idea that at all times we, um, you know, we need more or less of something. Yeah. So for instance, like I know that after sex, 
I need to feel connected to a person so I don't feel used. Yeah. So I need physical touch. Yeah. But then also, like, with, but because I know that I can communicate that, but then someone who, like, my partner at the time, my casual partner or whatever, if they know, if, if you know, if they know what they need after sex, maybe some people, I don't know, don't need physical touch. I mean, I, I'm the philosophy that everyone needs physical touch. I agree. Yeah. But, you know, if, if they're, if they're after sex not feeling safe for whatever reason, because sex puts you, you know, makes you very vulnerable because it's the most intimate act you can do sometimes, right? Yeah. Mostly yeah. speaking. But if they, for whatever reason, trauma, whatever, are feeling like it's not, they don't feel safe to touch or be touched. I think that's really important that they learn how to communicate, that, that they can communicate that or we are, you know, aware of that. Yes. So in terms of how we consume people and how we engage sexually with people, we just are so bad at understanding boundaries and all, like not only like sexual, physical boundaries, but emotional boundaries. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I, I guess, yeah, I'm just trying to really learn how to be more mindful in the way that I receive energy or receive experiences and put out. Yes. And that you don't have to hold yourself – you don't have to be the same person at every moment. You know? No. Like you don't yeah, yeah, yeah. if you don't react the same time after sex every time, that's okay. Yeah. And and this is something that I had to check myself with recently. Like, you know, if you know, even though I need to be held after sex and that's important to me, you know, if I, I guess sometimes I expect, you know, my partners to always be in that space to hold me. And if they don't I'm like, you're selfish because you're a man and you just want to disconnect. But I had a moment the other day where I realized that the person I slept with at the time, probably like because of his trauma, when I ask him to hold me after sex, it's also quite traumatic for him. Or there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on that's difficult. And we're all carrying around the stuff. And then suddenly we're having sex and we're in this intimate, vulnerable thing. And afterwards, it's like so, and it's gonna it's gonna change every time. It's gonna change every time. But if we start to look a bit more um, specifically, sorry, just a, um, I just did a giant fight. I'll say that <laughs> um, but if we start looking, if if we start to have um, a language or um, parameters or a philosophy behind how we deal with people's emotional, physical well-being in terms of uh, connections and relating if we can bring that into our sex lives i think that would be so amazing i think so too um because then yeah yes because then you are but also i think the problem yeah with hookup culture is the consumption of it by maybe by very nature of hookup culture you are consuming people right yeah at base level it's really hard not to be selfish yeah, but I guess it feels like tr- it's there's this it's transactional. Where I guess I'm not if people want that it to be transactional, fine. But it's like I think for me, I think there's a way. And but the, I guess this is the thing I'm asking. Mm. I actually think there's a way to to um, to you know honor the casual nature of hookup culture because one size don't fit all, right? Yes, I'm very monogamous, so. You know, like, yeah, I'd love to have sex with the same person again and again and again. I mean, I say that now, but who knows, in 20 years I might be bored, right? But I think for those who want to do it, want to participate, and when we, I mean, even I participate in the casual sex hookup culture, I think there are ways in which we can still look after the other person, even within the understanding that we might never see each other again. But for that moment, how do we look after each other? Yes, you know, yeah. and I actually think consent training, it actually the way consent training is being developed, it actually covers all of this. Consents because with consent you're starting to not only think about physical consent but emotional consent and like pressuring, you know, grooming and pressuring, etc. Mm. etc. So actually consent training is really like clear mindfulness, right? At the core of it, it is a mindful is having a mindful experience when you're engaging sexually with someone. Yes. And I think that's quite an amazing thing. Yeah. And I would love for, like, really extensive consent um, things to uh, – workshops to be taught in schools because 
it goes back to listening to your body, right? Yeah. So, like, as women, and you probably have these experiences as well, but, like, I mean, I have a conversation every other day with, a, like, one of my female friends about how we have not wanted to have sex but have felt pressured into having it mm. for the other person. Yeah. So it's, you know, in terms of, like, in a court of law, we consented. But, like, emotionally we weren't we weren't really wanting to have it. Yeah. But we did it because we didn't want to make the other person feel bad or we didn't want to make them feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I've had men say to me, that sucks so much. I just don't have patience for that though. Like if you don't want to, you need to say it like that. And I was like, I know where you're coming from, but yeah, obviously you don't know what it's like to be <laughs> in, that some, space. in that space. And, and you don't know what it culturally, what it's like to either be a woman or a minority or whatever in which you feel like you have to people please. You are always trying to make the dominant culture or the, the person with more power. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Make it easier for them and come across as non-threatening to yes. them. Yes, yes. So we don't learn to assert ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. And so in a way, consent training brings us back to the body, you know? Yeah. If we're connected to our bodies and we value that connection it will be a lot easier, I think, for us to be able to assert our boundaries in yeah. terms of, like, consensual situations. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. That sentence I, did. I, yeah. I, but, yeah, and, 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 and also, if we are going to teach our men and people in general, but especially our men, to learn how to read emotional cues too, then the idea, you know, physical consent is not just physical consent, you know? Yeah. Then we start, we're, we're actually teaching people how to look after each other a bit better. Yes. Oh. You know, and how to be more aware yeah. of the really complicated nature mm. of these kind of, of, you know, joining someone's body up with yours. Yeah. And the stigma it comes with. Um, did you want to talk about Motherland? Or do you feel like, I mean, it's up to you. Oh, yeah, I don't mind talking I about Motherland. What's the time? We've, we've gone quite. Oh, wait, yeah. Wait, how long is it? We have two at the moment. Do you need to go? I mean, we don't have to. No, no, no. I know we can. Um, 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 well, is there anything? Is there anything that I haven't any, said yet? Yes. Well, uh, t- get, let's get it. Off, let's hear it. Get it off your chest. Okay. Good. <laughs> um, with Motherland, I've done uh, kind of a few interviews about that now, and I think that what I'm really interested in doing is. I'm going to repeat myself, redefining what it means to me uh, to put quite, to put trauma on stage. Mm. I don't, ironically, I really hate confessional theatre. So I don't know what the fine line between cabaret slash gig theatre and confessional theatre is. This is after I did I'm Rachel Chu, which was playing on the genre. So I don't like confessional theatre because I find a lot of confessional theatre inauthentic. Mm-hmm. When I say confessional theatre, I mean theatre where it's like an actor talking about their lived experience or in a theatrical way. Yes. So I, while I really hate that because I think often it comes off quite contrived and inauthentic, I love the idea of cabaret as an intimate way to connect with the audience uh, as a character or as yourself. That it kind of less like there's still a theatrical language, but because of the fine line between gig theater and cabaret, yeah, I find that that's a line in which authenticity kind of can maybe live a bit. You can access authenticity maybe a bit quicker. Yeah, what are you throughout this process? What are you learning about yourself? Well, that's a great question that no one's asked me yet. Actually, <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, um, yeah I'm. I am learning that uh, maybe the longings that I've always had that I used to think were due to um, the trauma, like the trauma in my life of like being uprooted, Mm. whatever. Um, But maybe that there are ancestral links to my longings. So if my trauma is ancestral maybe my desires are ancestral too Mm. so i'm really especially with the kind of healing work and i'm kind of dabbling in a lot of spiritual work at the moment like i'm doing reiki you know and all that kind of stuff i'm really interested in exploring what i feel 
about that and what I think away from a very Catholic perception and a very, you know. Yes. But um, I think I'm finding that maybe there is a spiritual, maybe, and also in connecting with my body, I'm connecting spiritually with myself. Yes. And my ancestors. So I'm, I'm realizing that there's been a deep longing that's existed in me actually way before probably I even read books about Sweet Valley, you know, like romance. So, yeah, and I'm also learning that I am probably a lot more creative than I think I am. And also, I do not give my time, myself enough time to express myself creative, creatively. And how much time it takes to really write, that's another thing. And I think all my life I have like been quite poetic. Like I love poetry, well, some poetry. Yeah. I've loved music. And I've always been interested in how we express ourselves poetically and artistically. And even though this is probably my first big writing piece, I have been a writer all my life. Yeah. Like when I was little and then in Singapore, you know, in the theater, we used to like devise scenes and write, write them. And actually being able to have a project in which I'm paid for and I can I can actually hone and hone that creativity. It so it kind of intersects with me finding my political voice. Cause actually before I got the funding for this, everyone had been asking me for years, being like, So when are you gonna write something? Like you've been in everyone else's productions, but when are you gonna put out something of your own? And I used to think, I mean, I don't know what I wanna say. Like, I guess I have a lot to say, but I have no way to formulate it, you know? Yeah. I've got no vehicle. I feel like there was a massive block. Mm. And actually in the last year or two, just with my own growth and my spiritual journey, finding my voice, etc., it has unlocked that creative door to find a way that I can express myself on paper. I love it. So, yeah, I guess I am realizing, what I'm learning about myself is that uh, I have a lot of, hang-ups yeah <laughs> we all do we, we all, all do. do but I have a lot of hang-ups about appearing over emotional appearing you know like it, it actually still comes back to my experience being very very gendered and being a light-skinned Asian woman mm. you know and also I think with the current climate we're in yes I also want to have high conversations about being to'iwi and about the colorism that occurs yeah. in our communities. Like recently with the Black Lives Matter movement and the march, you know, I found the Chinese community so divided. Yeah. On like what was the right way to protest, what was the right way to respond, right? Yes. And I was so, it was a real wake up call for me to realize that, you know, to realize my own complicit, my own complicity in the colorism, racism narrative. We always think about racism, and we should, in opposition to whiteness. Yeah. That we often forget to look at the racism that occurs within minority voices. And how that is a product of a white supremacist system yes. pitting minorities against each other. But how colorism has really existed for so many years. Yeah. You know, it, it's existed since the dawn of time, right? Yeah, yeah. And it just so happened that whiteness became the dominant culture there. But, you know, like we don't, I feel like the Chinese community is really bad at talking about how we support our Indian whānau. Yeah. How we support our Pacifica and our Tangata Whenua whānau. Yeah. And the BLM protests that happened on level two really brought that all to a head because mm. there were so many and it was a generational divide as well totally right the, yeah I feel well, I hear that generational divide where it's you know boomers who want who have close proximity whiteness and really believe that the way is to put your head down and be the, and, and be the model minority that yeah sort yeah of stuff, which is so know? bizarre right don't like, rock the boat exactly it is a don't rock the boat um and then with the extra pressure of COVID, that brought a whole new kind of distraction to the argument. So a lot of anti-protest sentiment got veiled as COVID concern, right? Mm. And it was really disturbing to me because the most amount of criticism I faced from attending 
and I sh- I will say it like I attended the I attended the first protest and the second one but the first one under level two mm. and that was because my black whanau asked me to show up for them mm. and even though I felt uncomfortable at doing it it wasn't about me yes and I think maybe a lot of us are not a lot of minorities who are trying to do this kind of work in this space maybe we don't talk about how we feel uncomfortable but we do it anyway yeah so people might look at us and assume oh like you know they're so comfortable in there because you know and and also people assume that like full like full-blooded chinese or very chinese presenting people whatever are so much more comfortable in their activism because they can claim they can claim that they're other. And that I don't know, that might be true. I don't know. But mm. I think we're not good at talking about our challenges and having to confront our own racism. So I'm not going to lie. It was really quite weird walking down Queen Street yelling, Black Lives Matter, even though they do. I still felt this weird disconnect between what I was saying the amount of black friends that I know and what's happening in America. It felt like a very almost American thing to do. Mm. But even though I had all these feelings about it, I realized it's not really about me. Yes. It's not about how I felt and whether I, it, it's actually, yeah. it's, show up. Yeah. It's actually not even about how useful I think this is. Mm. It is the fact that I was personally asked by my black whanau to come and lend my body mm. as a tool and support in this time uh, because this is how they needed to express the mai mai that had been done against them. And this is how they needed to heal and this is what they needed to say with their lived experience as Black Pano. And yeah. so I was like, no matter how I feel about it, I'm going to go there and I'm going to show up because, you know, I'm complicit sometimes in my own anti-Black, you know, my own anti-Black racism. Yeah. Or I have been, or I've learned it, right? And yes. I need to unpack that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so even in like a yoga space, right? Yeah. Gosh, you have no idea how much like posting about anti-racist work and decolonizing yoga has a lot of my Pakia friends uncomfortable. Really? That makes them more uncomfortable than my BLM stuff. It's bizarre. Re- that's really interesting. Is it because they think, um, do they feel they are entitled to that space? Yes, I think so. And, you know, sometimes I do too in terms of certain things. Mm. And I have to really check myself and be like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not Tangata Whenua and I'm not Indian. So someone, people have been challenging me recently saying, you're not Indian. Who are you to say this? Mm. You know, or, you know, or when I, you know, uh, speak to someone about maybe uh, their cultural tattoo, calling it a like a tamoko when they're not Maori you know people people tend to challenge me and be like yeah but you're not this and you're not that who are you to say something and it's actually good because it's made me comfortable I said no I'm not I'm to'iwi and I'm a a light-skinned minority so actually I need to do this labor and Mm. and warn you about how this might come across so that you know that you know whoever's whoever's culture you're probably appropriating doesn't have to do that labor yeah so actually owning the fact that i'm not either or yes is quite good because i think if more like in between or other cultures kind of pointed out then you know yeah it lessens the burden on that culture yeah but also that comes with a lot of like education right like listening like finding my indian yoga teachers finding and failing that like finding my tagata whenua yoga teachers yes who I can support or find, and you know, that was the whole thing about moving studios to Mahi. Yeah. Like I really wanted to move to a studio or find a studio that aligned with my social values and that, and that was doing the work. Yeah. In that's that the thing I, you're, just, you're searching for. I feel like as we are learning the stuff for ourselves and we're sort of searching and we find these spaces, it's like the people come, it's like you, you attract these people. Yeah. And opportunities. And, you it know, all starts yes, happening. and it all starts happening. And I think, I mean, look, I do really believe in manifestation and et cetera, and what you put out comes back, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, I was just telling you earlier that, like, even in talking, I was talking about decolonizing my, like, romantic taste, like, trying to be attracted to more POC men. Yeah. And it's just, I've been saying it for like a year and then it happened. It, it, one Korean drama, it opened the door, you know, and I, and, and it really, 
I mean, it is what you it is what you like mentally and also physically put out right in the world the people that you're engaging with. Yeah. So I really feel like I'm enjoying the fruits of my, like, my yes. my small my small little changes in my life that I've been trying to do, like hang out more with POC, consume more Asian media. Yeah. And that's, yeah, led to this thing. It's taken a little while, but it yes. worked. Um, and Asian, Asians with Tinaranga Tinatanga. Oh, yeah. Are you going to the yes. workshop? So yes. I'm excited for that too, right? And also, because that, that's, a, I've known about them for ages. Yeah. But I've never, for years, but I haven't really done anything in that space. But it's always been something at the back of my mind. Yeah. And part of me is like, it should always have been at the forefront. But good time to get into it. Yeah. But yeah, like, but sometimes you have to say goodbye to things that you hold dear in order to, um, you know, to, to, to really get the thing that you want. So for instance, my yoga studio, it was a really hard decision for me to leave my old yoga studio because it was my first yoga studio. Mm that I went to. It was the birthplace of my connection with my body. But it also was, you know, it's a pretty, it, it's white owned and, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on there. Yeah. Um, and I think I really had to, I really had a moment where after I'd asked the owner, are you doing any work in the space of anti-racist work? Like, it's okay if you're not. Like, I didn't want to say you need to be doing this, but I just wanted to say, hey, this is something I'm really interested in and it's close to my heart. And I can see that other studios are doing that. Are you by any chance doing any work in this space? Because if you do, I would love to support it. So I thought that was a really great, curious great, question. Curious way of trying to let them know that this stuff is in demand. Wokeness, whatever you want to call it, is in demand. And this is something that me as a student, I would like without trying to pressurize them. Mm. And when they said, when they basically said, oh, it's great you found a course. I personally care about climate change. I was like, that, but, oh, you know, and I was talking to Sandra about it. It really was kind of like, oh my God. Like, so now I have a choice. I've been talking, talking the talk so much. Yeah. I need to choose whether I take my money somewhere else and like kind of break up with my studio. But, and me taking my money somewhere else means saying goodbye to this place that has introduced me really like honed my journey with yoga but it's also been a place that I felt uncomfortable at times. Yeah. Just because of my own internalized whiteness. Yes. Where I, you know, I, I've had times where I felt great in the session and then looked around the bodies in the room and felt like I wasn't, like I was the only bigger yeah. color body. Mm. And that, you know, I could see my puku in the mirror and everyone else, their, their yoga poses look different. And I was like, oh, so if I lose weight, I'll get, you know, I'll, I'll look like them. So it's for good cause, you know. So I just realized that, you had to make that choice. I had to make that choice. And then I had to ask myself, what is holding me to that studio? Because it was really difficult. Like, I really, I didn't want to leave. Yeah. And Sandra, when she, Washington, who's yes. a wonderful, this is how Amazing. we met, right? Yes. Or no, we met before that, but we've bonded over Sandra's yes. mahi and her yeah. sisterhood circles. That's how I met Sandra, actually, because my old studio programmed her, which was amazing, because she was, like, one of the only POC. I was like, sorry, there's a... There's um, someone who's not in a, the skinniest body ever and they're black teaching at my studio. Sign oh, what the hell? Sign me up. Yeah. And then she didn't feel quite comfortable in this space from what I understood. She moved to Mahi and then did all that great work at Mahi. Mm. So, you know, Sandra didn't really put any pressure on me, but this was just after BLM. And I really thought, okay, I need to examine what is holding me to the studio. And I realized that what was, was me wanting to be that like skinny mm. fit yoga girl your aspirational it was my aspirational like i wanted mm. to f i i think for so long i wanted to fit into that studio that i tricked myself into believing that i belonged and that they cared about me yeah but they actually they did they actually said to you a non-white person actually climate change is more important yeah basically i um yeah i guess the whitewashing of climate change is another podcast altogether um yeah but then you know yeah. like it and i think we don't talk about how when we're making these decisions you do it does cost you something yeah but you gotta what do you you know you gotta give up something you gotta give up something yeah and once i moved to mahi i've never looked back i don't even miss it because whatever Mahi provides me in terms of yoga is giving me so much more than my old studio ever could. Yeah. And my old studio is great in some aspects, but it really limits itself. Yeah. 
and yeah i just you know and i i i guess i do miss it in some regard but yeah mahi just fills up it offers me more so by letting go of that i've actually invited something that's much more suited to my life in yeah and i have i have a way closer relationship to mahi i feel in the like six like less than six months i've kind of gone there on and off than i've had with my old studio that i was there i'd paid them so much money for three years and that says something doesn't it it says something Mm. and yeah like in yeah in my own journey i've had my own uncomfortable moments of having to grapple with giving up being seen as you know the really good asian girl yeah and i think at some point you have to just be like do i want to fit into that box or do i just want to redefine it for myself oh Love it. I think that's a very good thing to end on. I know. We've just been talking for ages. I know. Thank, thank you, you so much. No, thank you so much. You'll have to come back because I feel like we could just talk for hours. If you've made it this far, thanks for listening. If you've got a question, comment, or anything that you'd like to be discussed on here, head to Asian and Aotearoa on Instagram. Find the link in bio and leave a voice message.